always admire people who can do things that I could never even remotely come close to doing. Hey, welcome to Sierra Bible Church, whether you're here or whether you've joined us online. It's good to have you with us. My name is Jesse, and uh, for the most part, I have the great privilege and honor of, of being able to teach the Word of God uh, on a weekly basis, uh, which is a great honor to do, even though uh, in 2020, that has thrown a curveball uh, towards our pastoral team and, and the way that uh, we operate <clears throat> and navigate this season. It's been, it's been a crazy year. I was actually reflecting uh, back on 2020, and I'm not preaching on Sunday. Uh, another one of our great guys is going to be preaching on Sunday. And so this marks the last sermon for me of 2020, and I can tell you I am looking forward to... Uh, to jumping into 2021 and, and digging in and not having to uh, uh, worry about things as much as I have in the last year. Anyone else looking forward to 2021? A couple of you, maybe? All right. A few of you? A few of you? Anybody else want to redo 2020? Good? No? Oh, okay. Oh, you didn't sound too excited about that. Hey, uh, if you are new, check out our bulletin. We've got a Connect card in there. Uh, or if you're online, you can go to sbctrucky.com. Uh, you can support us through there and all of that. And I just say a big thank you to those of you who've supported us over the last year. Uh, by your generosity, we've been able to continue to expand our ministry, not have to lay off any staff and things like that. And so uh, that's been a huge blessing. So if you look around in the room, <clears throat> there are six banners that you can see. And you can see a big statement behind me, I am. So I am is kind of plastered everywhere in your program you just got. It says I am on your program cover. And then when you came in, there's actually a seventh one uh, when you come in of a painting of Jesus that says I am the bread of life. All of these things you see in the room, uh, the digital stuff, the stuff behind me, these, the painting, all hand painted, all hand done uh, by guys in our church. And uh, we're thankful to have a great art team and so what we've been doing for the last several weeks uh, is there is a season in the Christian calendar called Advent, if you're not familiar with that term. Advent just means coming. And so Advent is in the Christian calendar for us as Christians to celebrate uh, or to dive in with the church fathers and anticipating and waiting and sharing in that kind of reality where we're anticipating and waiting for the Savior, for the Messiah to come. And so uh, 2,000 years ago, there was some shepherds in the field. They're looking for the star of Bethlehem. They're waiting for this Messiah. The Jews were waiting for the Messiah. And then we know that he came uh, amongst men. Jesus came. So we celebrate that. Uh, it's a four-week time in the church calendar, uh, which accumulates on the Sunday before uh, Christmas. And then we also anticipate the reality that Jesus is going to have another advent. We're, we're in, in essence, adventing again that Jesus is going to come back a second time. Uh, and this time he won't come as a baby, but he'll come as a judge and he will come to redeem his bride, which is you, the church, and there'll be no more suffering and there'll be no more pain. There'll be no more politics. There'll be no more coronavirus. There'll just be perfect relationship with Jesus in a perfect place with perfect food, perfect dancing and perfect celebrating. And the church rejoiced in that. Amen. So I'm looking forward to that Advent, and so uh, hopefully uh, as we dive in this morning, uh, or this evening, you can tell I'm used to preaching in the morning, uh, this evening you, you will have a greater anticipation for the coming of Jesus, a greater heart for who He is, uh, maybe a greater openness to be in a relationship with Him. <clears throat> the idea of I am actually originates all the way back in the book of Exodus. And so if you'll remember the biblical story, which is part of a great narrative in the entire Bible, 
the people that were God's people, the Jews, were held captive by Pharaoh in Egypt. And this guy kind of comes out of the woodwork, shortening the story up for you a little bit. His name is Moses. Moses finds God in a burning bush, what we call a theophany, uh, Christ in the Old Testament. And God speaks to Moses and tells Moses to go back to Egypt and tell Pharaoh to release God's people. And Moses is timid. He doesn't necessarily want to do that, and, and he's scared of what might come. And he says, okay, well, what, by what authority do I basically go in? Who, who should I say sent me? And God says, I am. You tell Pharaoh, I am sent you. And through the Exodus and through that language of I am, later the Jews would create through that verbiage the word Yahweh, which is the name of God, where we would get the name Lord. Yahweh was so precious and so magnificent. Just the name of God alone was so holy that when the Jews wrote it down in their manuscripts, they wouldn't even write the vows of Yahweh because it was too precious and too holy. This idea of God saying, I am that I am, he's saying, I'm uncreated, I'm eternal, I'm perfect, I'm holy, you're created, I'm not, I'm everything, I'm unlimited, and you are limited. This was a big deal, this is a big statement. And then all of a sudden, this baby comes, and this baby is born, and as he grows older, he will invoke this name. So let me read to you, first of all, one of the most famous Christmas passages in the New Testament from Matthew chapter 1, verse 22. All these things took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. So these are the things that are occurring now several hundred years after they have been predicted. Behold, a virgin shall come, shall conceive a son, and they're going to call him, they're going to call him, here's the verse for you, if it'll work. Uh-oh, am I disconnected? There it is. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call him what? Emmanuel. This is his name. His name will be Emmanuel, which means, literally means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He, he took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and they called him Jesus, Yeshua. Now, see, when this baby is born, he's identified as God with us, and in a few moments you'll see how these I am statements because it, it connect with the idea of who God is. So if you've come tonight and you're wondering, okay, why do Christians worship Jesus? Why do Christians worship only Jesus? Why do we long for him? Why, why do we spend so much time and attention uh, admiring who he is? You've come on a good night. Why should I follow him? Because of who he is. And he tells us, not only in Matthew, which I've just read, but in these other passages, who God is. He gives us his identity. He tells us something about himself, which is important. Because if God created you, which he did, God then, by way of showing you his identity, shows you your identity and who you are. Jesus actually makes several claims throughout the book of John. I am the light. He literally says, I am the light. If you follow me, you won't walk in darkness. You know what's amazing about light? No amount of darkness can quench out any amount of light. I mean, in a few moments, we're going to have a candlelight service, which represents this reality that Jesus is the light that came into the world. But if I lit a match in this room, turned off all of the lights, and all of a sudden made the entire world go dark, none of the darkness, not all of that darkness, and all of the world could quench that light. Darkness never quenches the light. And Jesus literally says, I am this light. I will illuminate your life. 
I'll make your life worth living. I'll give you a new way of seeing life. He says, I'm the bread of life. I'm the substance. I'm the food. He really says, I'm the resurrection. I'm, I'm the good shepherd that cares for you and guards you. I'm the way, the truth, and the life, he says. I am. These are all statements that when he invoked them, he was telling the Jews, I'm God. I'm the same one that Moses said sent to Pharaoh. I'm God. These statements alone, okay? You, you could take these seven statements, write them in the New Testament, and they would be sufficient enough without anything else in the New Testament for the Jews to want to murder and crucify Jesus because they would have seen this as blasphemous. There's no way this man can say he is God. So the last several weeks, we've taken apart kind of each one. And this evening, we're going to land on the last one, the very last one. And it picks up in John chapter 15. So if you have your iPhone with you or if you have your Bible with you and you want to follow along, let me read to you this last I am statement in the book of John, and we'll dive in and hopefully find ourselves with a greater, a greater heart of value towards our Savior this evening. I am, there's a statement, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, hopefully that's you, you being the branch, Jesus, God being the vine, He prunes that it may bear more fruit. But you're already clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, and they're thrown into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I love you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, I will abide, you will abide in my love, just as just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I've spoken to you, that your joy, my joy, may be in you, and that your joy may be full. It's the last I am statement. And it has actually a lot of little, if you can kind of get it a little creative, there's some Christmas connections. right? I was thinking, uh, you know, when I'm studying and trying to connect things with how, how Christmas is and different, where we're at in culture and try to connect it so it comes more alive. And I thought, this was, this was the best I could do. It's a little cheesy, but Jesus essentially is saying, I'm the Christmas tree, you're the branches, and he desires that we bear many ornaments. I know it's stupid and cheesy. I am a father, so I do have dad jokes now. It's great. <clears throat> but Jesus says, I'm the vine. I'm the tree. I, I'm, I'm the source of life. And this is interesting because, because in the Old Testament... In the Old Testament, God actually literally said it was the Jews that were the vine, not Yahweh. But the Jews were supposed to be a source of fruit to the world. The Jews were supposed to be a source of light to the world. The Jews were supposed to be hope to the world. But what ended up happening is the Jews were fruitless. And the Bible in the Old Testament tells us this over and over again. They failed and they, they fell and they kept sinning. And so when Jesus comes and says, I'm the vine, he's actually lifting the weight off of the Jews because he's saying, I'm going to be the vine now. I'm going to do what you couldn't do. I'm going to be the light. I'm going to be the bread. I'm going to be the hope. I'm going to be the fruit. And if you get this, you'll be connected to me, and you'll bear much fruit. 
I'm the true vine, and I want you to bear much fruit. You know how encouraging this is at Christmas time that this little baby child who tells us who he is, he's the light, he's all these things, he's, he's the great one, he's the good shepherd, he's the Lord, he's our Savior, he's Emmanuel, he's God with us. He wants you to bear fruit. This is good news because the Bible actually tells us what fruit is. Galatians chapter 5 says that the fruit of God is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's fruit. Uh, What he's basically saying is, I want you to have this love. I want you to have this joy. I want you to have patience. I want you to enjoy your life. Now, it's Christmas time. Some of you have children. Some of you were kids at one time, hopefully all of you. And uh, you know what it's like. Do you remember, for those of you who, who don't have kids, but do you remember what it was like waking up in the morning to open up with full anticipation that Christmas gift? What was, the, what was your best Christmas gift? Can anyone remember their best Christmas gift ever? Just shout it out if you can. Paintball gun. A paintball gun. It's encouraging. What else? A quad? You got a quad. What was that? An easy bake oven? Is that what you said? An easy bake oven. Okay. A golden retriever, a puppy. Jesus, good answer. You win. You win. Everyone else loses. You win. <laughs> he said Jesus. That's awesome. Okay. Man, so, okay, being, being in ministry, my schedule is a little bit different during holiday season because, because essentially the staff and the pastors, we work on a night like this. And so I'm going to be really tired tomorrow, and we'll celebrate with my grandparents tomorrow, and, and, and it takes time to get ready for, for a message like this and all that. So my family opens up our family gifts earlier. So we did it yesterday. So on the 23rd, uh, we open up our gifts as a family, and man, it's just a blast as a dad to see your kids rip open something and, and look at it and go, oh my gosh, yeah! You're just excited. There's joy there, like, like, like just pure anticipation. Uh, I was sharing uh, in the first gathering that, you know, all of these places are closed and, and, and how, like, like, certain things are falling through the cracks. And we've got a special ed group that, that we've opened up the building to that, that has been coming every single week. You know, these are adults who, who, are, who have special needs. And man, they, they're here and, and they show up. And I remember I'm in my office this last week. I'm studying away. I'm grinding it out. You know, I'm trying to figure out, you know, how, how not to kill the church. You know, it's like that's, that's like the pastor's job. Like, God, this is your church. Help me not screw it up. And praying and strategizing and asking, looking at the word. What, is, what does the word say? Having conversations with people like, you've got to wear a mask. You shouldn't wear masks. You shouldn't gather. You should gather. Okay, Lord, what do I do? Because everyone's got an opinion. And I want to do what's right before God. And so here I am going through these things. And I go next door, and here's these special ed group guys, special needs group. And they're, they're over there, and they're like, hey! And I was like, hey! And they're like, hey! And I was like, hey! Hey! So it just kept ramping up. And I thought, man, this is the way that God created us to be. They don't know there's a virus. They don't even care what day it is. It's just, hey! Hey! God desires us to be like children. And I was thinking of this to try to connect with Christmas movies. One of the things that I do with my kids, we love movies in my family, and, and one of the things that's always helped me is the quote from J.R. Tolkien where he says, in every good movie, every good story, 
<clears throat> there's underpinnings of the gospel. Even in a secular story, that if you find yourself resonating with a story and like loving it, he basically said that, that, that it's because the gospel's in there. Resurrection, hope, there's something about Christ in there that resonates biblically, whatever it may be. And uh, I was thinking, what, what kind of film during Christmas time really connects us with, with this kind of joy, this kind of fruit that Jesus wants us to have? How many of you remember this guy? Yeah. This is one of my favorite movies. If you don't like this movie, you can go home right now. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I love this movie. One of my favorite lines is when he's from the North Pole and he really knows Santa Claus and he's in a store in New York. And it can't, just so you know, if you pay attention to the movie, there's a stark contrast between the joy of Buddy the Elf and the stoic faces of those who live in New York City. And he comes up to the New York Santa. You're not Santa. You smell like beef and cheese. You stink. <laughs> I love that line. How about treat every day like it's Christmas? There's another movie. Uh, we had it on this morning for a little bit called Scrooged. And at the end of the movie, he says, we celebrate Christmas once a day. We shouldn't celebrate once a year. We shouldn't celebrate it once a year. We should celebrate it every day. And I love this line here. I just like to smile. Smiling's my favorite. Now, say what you want. Now, I, I understand that Buddy the Elf is not our savior. I need to be clear in a biblical church like this. <clears throat> he's, he's a bad savior, but he teaches us something about Jesus. If you see Jesus frowning at any moment as a Christian, you have a wrong view of who Jesus is. Jesus loves you. He has come to pursue you. That's the whole idea of, of this baby invading earth from heaven, that you would bear much fruit. Or like how Tim Keller says it, for those of us who are a little bit more mature, let me put it another way. How can a selfish person become unselfish? How can a controlling, manipulative person become a liberator? How can a cowardly person become courageous? How can a whiner become a giver? How can a worrier become a rock? And how can a bigot get understanding? Jesus. Jesus is telling us that in that he's the vine that will produce much fruit, that he provides the change that is necessary that we need to have this kind of peace and love. In fact, in Psalms chapter 1, it tells us that for those of us who delight in God's word and delight in Christ, that we, we will be like a tree planted by the streams of water and that in good seasons we'll produce fruit and will not wither and that in all we do we will prosper. And yet we know in this world that we are constantly being pressed upon that the way to true growth is through self-improvement. Right? What's coming after Christmas? New Year's resolutions. Right? Pretty soon you'll be going down the line and thinking, how can I improve myself? More exercise, more diet, better sleep. Maybe I'll meditate more. The world tells you that if you want to become something special, you've got to work on it, man. You've got to do it. And, and, and you know what? This is why we need New Year's resolutions. You know why we need them? Because every year we make them and every year we fail. Every year we set the standard, we set the goal, and then every, it, no one goes, for instance, I'll give you one. I'll give you one. Every year, I'm going to eat better. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. I want to, but I'm not going to. Every year, I'm going to exercise more. <laughs> right? We're like tricking ourselves. Right, this goes all the way back. Like, look at these guys. You remember these guys? 
How many of you remember these guys? Right? Here you've got four characters. All of them need something. Right? What does the lion need? What does he want? He wants more courage. And then the scarecrow, what does he need? He needs a brain. He's dumb. And the tin man wants a, wants a heart. And the young little girl, she just, she just wants to go home. She wants to find her way home. So what do they do? They enter into a journey. They get on the yellow brick road, and they follow the yellow brick road because they're going to find their Savior in this Wizard of Oz. They come to the Wizard of Oz, and what does he have? Nothing but sorcery, nothing but tricks, magic. There's no substance there. It's not real, just microphones and smoke and mirrors. I see that as the world saying, get on this yellow brick road, pedal really hard, fight the witch, fight those weird little monkey things, get to the Wizard of Oz, get to your functional savior, whatever that functional savior may be, and then you'll be better, man. You're going to be a better person. Just do it. And what Jesus is letting us know is that you don't get fruit. You don't get fruit by working hard. You don't get fruit from a magical wizard. You don't get fruit from exercising in self-improvement. In fact, when we went through the sermon series on the Good Shepherd, I had to share this again with you. Uh, We saw what happens when we don't connect ourselves to the great I am. Jesus says, I'm the Good Shepherd. We recognize that we're sheep. Here's a sheep that has escaped its shepherd for six years. Self-help right there. Right? Look at this guy. Life's going well for that sheep. Right? Look, at the, he's defenseless, he can't move, but this is the reality. And what Jesus is saying, he's saying, you don't have to work for your salvation because I'm the good shepherd. I want to care for you. Here's the tagline of the evening. At Christmas time, the little baby reminds us that we need to trade our self-help for God's help to get rid of the self. In fact, Matthew chapter 16 literally tells us that if anyone is going to follow Jesus, they have to deny themselves, take up the cross, and follow me. It literally tells us that we have to deny ourselves. To lose our lives is to find our lives. I was sharing with somebody that reality of becoming the lead pastor of Sierra Bible Church almost four years ago, three and a half years or whatever it's been now. That it wasn't a promotion. I had people come and say, well, good job. well you got a promotion. Good job. That's not a promotion. It's a call to serve. It's a call to die. It's a call to love God's people regardless of, of the division, regardless of the strife. It's, it's, it's to show you the love of Christ as Christ would desire. So what does it look like to really make him the vine, to make him the good shepherd, to make him the light? The text, I think, shows us a couple key things for us, if, if we're Christians, that hopefully will be an encouragement to you. Number one, he says, every good branch. What happens to every good branch? They're pruned. It literally means the scissors of God are going to come at you. And there's two ways that God, and in the pruning, and I don't know, first of all, I'm not much of a farmer, but I realized this week as I was studying that the pruning process of plants, if you don't have a trained eye, which I don't, it looks to be a disaster. I mean, you're cutting this thing and you're, you're making a mess. You're cutting off what looks to be good leaves. And if you didn't know any better, you'd say you're killing the plant. You're pruning it. And there's two ways in which God uh, forms us, molds us, and shapes us. Number one, it's the Word of God. That's why we have to be people of the Word. 
We love God's word here. We open up the Bible here. We even on Sundays, because we love the word of God so much, we stand when we read it. Because it's a spoken word that changes us and molds us. Not too long ago, I think uh, it was in September, we bought for my oldest son a, a three-volume set of um, the Bible in a comic book form. I can't remember the name of it, but they're thick. They're like this big, okay? It's a big set, a lot of pictures and a lot of text. And he's 10, okay? That's how old my oldest is. His name's Peyton, named after Walter Peyton, just so you know. He, he's really upset that he's the only kid named after someone not, that's not a biblical character, but that's a whole other childhood trauma thing we'll deal with later. So he's 10 years old, and man, you know, we, we love our kids. We want them to exemplify the gospel. We want them to know Jesus. So we, we're constantly trying to teach them a thing about Jesus. We do Bible studies with them, all these things, you know. And, and no matter how hard we've worked, there's just certain things, certain sins, certain bad attitudes. We just can't get out of our kids. Anybody relate? You just can't do it. And he's been reading this now for, for the last several months. And my wife says to me, she says, there's been a direct connection with Peyton's patience and kindness and lovingness towards his siblings since he's been reading that book. And he's been coming into the living room while we watch shows at night, sitting down next to us, reading it, and then looking over and saying, can you believe this about Nebuchadnezzar? Why would anybody do that? And we get to share the gospel with him. And what we realized was this. Our son, at 10 years old, was being transformed not because of parental discipline, but because of the grace of God through his word. That's an amazing thing. Here I am trying to produce the fruit. And then through him just being in the word, it grows. It's being in his word. Uh, another thing that God uses, as you can see, as I already have up here, is circumstances and trials. Anyone had any of those recently? Right, 2020 has been God's scissors to his church. I've seen it. What is a true church? What isn't a true church? Will we stand? Will we defend the gospel? Will we still do the things that God has called the church to do in spite of the threat that may occur? There's people in our community who don't understand why we're gathering. In fact, we had some individuals come to us in the community who, who literally said, you know what, now it's starting to make sense. You're continuing to meet because you're not afraid to die. We've had people who don't know Jesus look on the inside and say, I, I'm starting to catch it. You're not afraid of the sting of death. You're not afraid of it. And yet we know that God will use trials and tribulations to purge the church of what is real and what is not. No one likes trials and tribulations. Even though we all know the verse from James where it tells us to count it all joy when we encounter what? The, the language there is various trials. COVID trials, election trials, vaccine trials are all various trials. That's why it's worded that way in the Bible just so it covers everything. All trials. Again, bring another movie in. My family's been uh, enjoying walking through The Hobbit. We did that through Thanksgiving. Watch the three films of The Hobbit. I love epic stories because the Bible's an epic story. And so uh, we, we had this plan before the holidays. We're going to watch the first three movies of The Hobbit, and then at Christmas time, we're going to watch The Lord of the Rings. So we're watching The Lord of the Rings, and here we are. I'm watching The Lord of the Rings. I'm getting ready for this message, 
And, and then I come across this in the movie. Do you remember this? Gandalf says, uh, when a conversation with Bilbo, I wish it need not have happened in my time, he says, about the ring and the hardship and the ugliness. Sauron and all of the death and, and battling. I'm sorry, Frodo. Uh, I said Bilbo earlier. And Gandalf says, so do I. And so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what we do with the time that is given to us. Again, you know, Tolkien had an idea of who God was, and, and inside this epic story, Gandalf is pointing towards this reality that and you don't get to decide your time. Someone else did, but you get to decide what you do with this time that is given to you. You remember in that movie, the idea of the ring, my kid, and I love it, man. I, we watch these things, and my kids keep going, why is the ring so heavy? Why does, why does man want the ring so bad? Why is Gollum always calling it his precious? Because the ring represents sin and darkness and selfishness. The fruit of that which is of the flesh. We yearn for it. It changes us. It manipulates us. It, it drags us down. But then we climb the Mount of Mordor. Throw that ring into the fire and destroy it. But you and I can't climb that mountain because it was Jesus who climbed the Mount of Golgotha and took your ring of sin and nailed it to a cross and destroyed it forever. It's the greatest story ever told. That God would love his people and make them his branches and prune us. There's a lesson with the pruning too, though. Pruning is not just for the believer, but it's for everyone. If you're a believer, he will prune you that you'll grow. But if you're not a believer, he will prune you and he will throw you away. So what do we do? What is the lesson of Christmas at this season, I think? Two things. Number one, my encouragement to you that you would abide in him. It's in the text. Notice again, it's not follow the yellow brick road, read a book on how to get a better brain, do some exercises to get a better heart. Go take some risks so you can get some courage. Work really hard so you can figure things out. Set some more goals for your life. That's not what the gospel is. The gospel is abide. It literally means to stay with him. Another way to say it in a, in a, in a more positive note is run to God. There's no reason to run from God. Do you remember when Jesus is being arrested? Initially, you've got a guy by the name of Peter who's like, you know what? I'll fight for you, Jesus. I'll do anything for you, Jesus. And then Jesus is arrested, and Peter runs off, and he denies his Savior. He denies this Emmanuel, this great I am. He denies God three times, and the rooster crows. Peter is devastated by this. He sees his, his friend, his God, his Savior die on a cross. Jesus is placed in a tomb, and what does Peter go? And do? He returns to his old ways. He returns to his old life. He goes back to what he knows. He gets back in the fisherman's boat. He goes back fishing. Not knowing what's going to become of him. Not knowing what's going to become of his identity. He, he's failed. Maybe you feel that way this evening. You feel like you failed. You feel like you've run from God. And while he's out on the boat, he gets a glimpse of somebody walking on the beach, and he recognizes it's Jesus. And the scripture literally tells us that he doesn't, he doesn't take his clothes off. He doesn't get in his swim trunks. He just jumps in the water and he swims to Jesus and he falls down at his feet. 
And Jesus feeds him a meal. And then he commissions Peter to equip and feed his sheep. This is an amazing story. And then Jesus tells Peter three times, I love you, I love you, I love you, for all the times that Peter denied Christ. There's the lesson there. As much as you have rejected him, hated him, and spit upon him, he just keeps forgiving. Abide in him. Abide in his word for sure, for it prunes you. But abide in his love, for he is the good shepherd who knows you and loves you. What do you do? You abide. You abide in his word. You've got to be a person of his word. You abide in his love. And you've got to start doing things that stir your affections for Jesus. And you've got to stop doing things that numb your affections for Jesus. It's one of the reasons why we continue to gather. Because we want to be stirred. We want our affections to grow. We don't want to get numb to the reality of how good God is. Because the world will numb you. It does everything it can to distract you with images and fun and a good time and hyped up emotions. And, and the, the result is just low lows. But if we'll get back out of the boat and we'll run to the baby in the manger who has all the power in the world but still humbled himself as a baby so we could all approach him, we'll find who we're really supposed to be. We'll find our love, our peace, and our joy. And then he tells us, notice, after you abide in me, not because you'll get my love, but because you know my love, you'll obey my commandments. For no greater love has one who loves one another and who lays his life down for another. Jesus has laid his life down for us. So there, our life could be risen and we could not walk anew and fresh in him. Amen? As the worship team comes up, <clears throat> we get our candles prepared and if my team of guys could come up, please. And Would you stand with me? So there's a beautiful image in the lighting of the candle and why we do it every single year, not just as a tradition, but as something that reminds us and again stirs our affection. Before you, you have just this single lit candle which represents the goodness of who God is. He truly is the light of the world. Again, he tells us, if we walk in this light, we shall not walk in darkness. He is a lamp unto our feet. He's the one who gives us new eyes that we would see the world the way we're supposed to see it, new minds that we would think the way he would desire us to think, new hearts that we would have the affection that he desires, new washed, clean souls so we would know his forgiveness and his intimacy. And as he looked down from heaven above, he saw his sheep as if they were sheep without a shepherd. He saw his sheep in the darkness that they couldn't see him, they couldn't know him. And so this beautiful light came down and it dwelt amongst the men, the tabernacle. And for 33 years, 
Jesus shared his light with his disciples. He shared his message of hope with those who didn't know him. And as he shared that good message of hope, as he shared the light of the world with others, those others then took that light and through the power of the Holy Spirit began to share that light with other people. And then more people captured the good message of the gospel that we're saved by grace and not works, that we're saved by faith alone in Jesus alone. And the message began to spread. And it began to spread, not just row after row, but from person to person, from city to city, from nation to nation, to where there is hardly a place on this planet where the good gospel message, the goodness of Jesus, the forgiveness that he provides for us, that there's almost anywhere in the world that you can go and find that message of hope. You know, as the light begins to light the room, begins to illuminate your faces. I said it in our first gathering, and I'll say it again. I got to see online who, all the different people who are watching online, we've got people from Massachusetts, people checking in from Oregon, New Jersey, New Hampshire. People from all over the world tuning in to be a part of what we're doing here, little Truckee, California. And I get to see your faces, and it reminds me of something in this season of isolation, and it's simply this. You're not alone. You're not alone. There's someone who knows you, and he fully loves you. And one day he's going to come back and fully redeem us. No more pain, no more sorrow. No more regrets. Just eternal light and eternal joy. Heaven is described as a beautiful wedding feast. And we all get to go. We all get to partake. You know, lately, we've got a guy who's been inviting a bunch of homeless guys to church on Sundays. Every single week for the last few weeks, we have these guys who come in. They've been beat up from the world but they feel accepted here. You want to know why? Because inside we're all the same. And on inside we all need that same hope. Let's just take a few moments and sing and raise our voices to the one who's worthy of our worship. Amen? Let's sing. Make you together, church. <clears throat> Silent night, holy night, holy is called, holy is
sleeping.